Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to Tune In, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Sebastian Schulman, and this week I'm on the phone with Jeffrey Weidlinger, the Joseph Brodsky Collegiate Professor of History and Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. Jeff is the author of a brand new book just out with Indiana University Press entitled In the Shadow of the Shtetl, Small Town Jewish Life in Soviet Ukraine. Jeff, Burhaba, welcome. Hi, how you doing? Good, good. How are you? I am good, thank you. Um, so I have I have read this book. I think it is uh, absolutely fascinating and, and totally captivating, and I think um, our listeners uh, will be equally as captivated. And um, I think we should just get uh, right to it. If you could just tell us a, a little bit about uh, the book. What, what is sort of the, the premise of, of this history of small-town Jewish life in Ukraine? Well, let me step back a minute first and tell you a little bit about how the book came into being, which is the book is part of an outgrowth of an oral history and linguistic project that I've been a part of and that you yourself have also been involved with, actually, Seb, um, as you know. Yep. And uh, that we've been doing for about 10 years, interviewing Yiddish speakers throughout Eastern Europe. And the project began uh, with David Katz's work that he was doing in Lithuania and Belarus, and then my colleague Dov Bear Curler and I started interviewing Yiddish speakers uh, throughout Ukraine. And in total, over the last 10 years, we've been going pretty much every summer. And over the last 10 years, we've interviewed about 400 Yiddish speakers, mostly in Ukraine, uh, but also a few in Moldova and Romania and Slovakia. And the book that I've written is based on their life stories, and particularly the life stories of a group of about 100 people that we interviewed or so who live in a region uh, most commonly known as Podolia, but that's really in the southern part of Ukraine, uh, near the Moldovan border, just a little bit south of Kiev. And the book tells the history of this community, uh, really from the revolutionary year from 1917, going up to about 1948-1949, and traces their life trajectories, mostly through their own words and through the oral histories uh, that we collected from them. Uh, it's, it sounds uh, absolutely incredible, and, and yes, I was uh, uh, a part of the project, as was uh, um, Asia Weissman Shulman, who's also here at the Book Center, the uh, director of our Yiddish Language Institute. Um, that, that project, by the way, for our listeners, is known as AHAIM, the uh, uh, Archives of Historical and Ethnographic Yiddish Memories, um, which uh, and AHAIM means homeward in Yiddish, quite a, quite a fitting name for the, for the project. Yeah, we liked it. Um, so the, the, these particular uh, communities um, seem to have sort of been missed or, or um, you know, lost from popular memory in terms of how we remember the shtetl. How do the, the stories that these people tell change the sort of popular image or, or contradict or add to the popular image of the shtetl? Yeah, well, that's what struck me about it. When we first went, the first time I went on one of these expeditions was back in 2002, and I didn't actually think that people still spoke Yiddish in Eastern Europe. Uh, certainly I knew that there were, you know, that Yiddish was still being used among certain groups of people, mostly Hasidic Jews, but um, by others as well. But I didn't think it was still spoken in the shtetls of Eastern Europe. And I didn't even think that the shtetls of Eastern Europe really even still existed in any identifiable way. Uh, you know, generally when the shtetl is referred to, it's talked about as vanished or as lost right. or erased in that type of uh, terminology. And when we went in 2002, and we went to places like Tulchin and Shargorod, and I saw that there were still actually functioning Jewish communities there, and functioning in Yiddish. They were speaking Yiddish to each other, and they spoke Yiddish on the street. 
Uh, that's become, you know, less common now in the last 10 years. Uh, but in 2002, there were still actual, actually Yiddish-speaking communities. And I understand just a few years before, uh, there were even larger Yiddish communities. So just the fact that there are still, or were still, Yiddish communities in the shtetls uh, in the 21st century, I think is surprising in and of itself. And then it also changed the way that I regarded Soviet Jewry. You know, I'd spent most of my uh, academic career studying Soviet Jewry, and the focus was always on uh, Soviet Jews in Moscow and St. Petersburg, maybe a little bit in Kiev, um, but certainly on people who'd left the shtetl. And the shtetl was always something that people left, that people went out of. And there were, you know, plenty of books out of the shtetl, or from shtetl to socialism, from shtetl to suburbia. It was always from the shtetl to somewhere else. And that's certainly an accurate trajectory of the life of most uh, Eastern European Jews, but it leaves out an com- important component, and that's those who stayed in the shtetl. And these are generally common folk. They're workers, they're, they uh, work the land, uh, they worked in factories, they maybe worked as bookkeepers in little towns, um, but they're not the type of intellectuals, for instance, that we associate with Soviet Jewry. Um, I had also, you know, myself, I had also associated Soviet Jews with uh, intellectuals and engineers and refuseniks, uh, scientists, and I was surprised that there were still people here who were, uh, you know, working in traditional handicrafts, who made a living making hats, for instance, as hat makers, uh, cobblers, and still practicing those trades, again, into the late 20th and even into the 21st century uh, in these shtetls. So that in and of itself, I think, is a novelty uh, that this work helped reveal to me. It, it's it's uh, it's absolutely a treasure, and, and as someone who has uh, also been in in these areas and and been in these shtetlach, um, it's really uh, an unexpected expected thing to find. Um, and so I'm glad that this this book is bringing this phenomenon to to the fore and to and to uh, to a broader broader audience. Um, but what did uh, you know, Jewish traditional life look like in the shtetls um, during this period that you're, you're investigating? Yeah, so it was a difficult life, uh, by all means. And, of course, we know that. Um, but I think the book and the stories, the personal stories that people tell us, really bring that to light. You know, the generation that uh, we're looking at were born right on the eve of the revolution. So the oldest ones were born in 1914, um, some were born in 1917, even I think we had one who was even born before 1914, um, but they were born right on the eve of the revolution. And they lived through this revolutionary decade, also staying in the shtetls when many people were fleeing at that point, uh, were doing whatever they could to get out of there. You know, we actually interviewed one person who was born, I think it was in 1918, and he was in a pogrom in 1919 Mm. uh, during the pogroms of the Civil War. And he has a scar on his hand from where he, as a baby, as a less than one-year-old baby, was shot in the arm while his mother was holding him. And uh, his entire family was killed in this pogrom, and they were left in the grave for dead. And he had a bullet wound, but he was still alive. And a Polish priest came by and found him, found this baby lying in the mass grave, uh, picked him up and nursed him back to health, took him to an orphanage, uh, and then later he was reunited with other members of his extended family and brought up by them. Uh, so this is the you know this is the oldest of the people, and that's their first formative experience, uh, really growing up in the uh, you know in the revolutionary turmoil mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. the Civil War years. And then 
you know, they lived through extreme poverty in the 1920s. Uh, then come the end of the 1920s, there's a collectivization drive to collectivize all of the farms, and part of that includes arresting local elites, and many of those local elites happen to be Jewish, uh, as a result of which a lot of Jews are arrested uh, in the late 1920s. Um, then that collectivization drive is followed by a massive famine, the Holodomor of 1931-32, uh, in which about 3.5 million people die, many of whom are Jews, and they live through that. And then the famine is just ending, and Stalin's Great Terror begins. Uh, there's another wave of arrests in the late 1930s, 1937, 1938. And then that's followed two years later um, by the biggest calamity they suffer, and that's the Second World War, uh, when these whole villages are destroyed. Uh, many of them have to flee east, flee into Central Asia, and then are able to return to the shtetl after the war. Uh, and then after the war, there's the uh, animosity towards the Jews uh, who have returned. The villagers were, you know, think that the Jews have gone, and then they come back, and uh, and there's a great deal of animosity towards them and anti-Semitism over the next few years. So it's really a difficult life, and one tragedy after another. Uh, I think what's unique about that, or what's you know, gives a slightly different orientation about that than the way we tend to regard the 20th century, is the way the Holocaust fits into the narrative. Mm. And for them. The Holocaust is just one more instance of extreme violence, certainly the most extreme violence they suffered, but it comes on the heels of a very violent uh, 20 to 30 years, and then is again followed by another turbulent uh, several decades. So it doesn't stand out in their memories as much as uh, the violence of the war would stand out in the memories of other Jewish survivors, right. say in Poland or in Hungary. Uh, it's more integrated into this life of violence. Uh, it's also more integrated into the experience of the town as a whole, uh, because they returned to the town after the war. You know, all the people that we interview are those who came back to the shtetl instead of those who fled afterwards. And when they came back, everybody in the town had suffered. It wasn't just the Jews, um, but their Ukrainian neighbors had also suffered terribly during the war. Uh, the Jews had had it worse, make no mistake about that. Um, but nevertheless, they're integrated into a community that is rebuilding and going through a collective trauma uh, over the course of the war. So this, this brings up a whole host of questions, but I want to um, take take uh, ask you to expand a little bit on what you just mentioned about the relationship with their non-Jewish neighbors. Um, living in the places that, the, that they continue to live in um, with people who, who had a complicated, complicated relationship to uh, you know the, the the various armies that passed through that area, what are their relationships to their neighbors throughout the period under investigation, and you know today when you're conducting these interviews? Yeah, it's a great question, and you know one of the issues that uh, you know I really try to understand. Um, so, for one, we're looking at a small subsection of the population, and it's those people who decided to stay. Uh, they decided to come back to the shtetl after the war. They continued to live there, and then particularly after 1989, 1991, when it became possible to leave Ukraine, and when, in fact, most residents of small towns of Ukraine did leave, uh, either for Israel, for America, or for one of the largest cities in the Soviet, in former Soviet Union, these are the people who stayed. Hmm. So that already says something about what their attitudes towards Ukraine are. Uh, these are people who felt more comfortable among their Ukrainian neighbors, uh, so it's a pre-selected group. Uh, but that being said, they, it's, it's complicated, and it shows a new way of 
perhaps, I wouldn't say reconciliation, but coming to terms uh, in some way with the people in whose midst they live. So some of them lived among perpetrators, and they were you know, moved back into Ukrainian towns with neighbors who either stood idly by while their families were killed or while they themselves were put into ghettos or sent into camps, uh, or actively collaborated. And sometimes the collaborators were punished. In fact, the Soviet Union uh, did a pretty good job in the immediate aftermath of the war of collecting information and trying to punish collaborators. Uh, those, who survived, those who weren't punished in the immediate aftermath ended up getting to live through um, uh, unpunished. So certainly some of them had to work in offices with uh, collaborators or at least people who stood idly by doing nothing, uh, working over in the next office and come to terms with that. But others also recognize that Ukrainians did a lot to help them. And many talk about how they were able to survive thanks to the help of their Ukrainian neighbors. And this is in part thanks to something that's uh, a little different about the ghettos of Ukraine than the ghettos that we generally think about when we talk about ghettos in Poland. Mm. And that's that they tended not to have walls around them. Uh, the ghettos, often they were just a few streets of these small towns that the Jews were restricted to, and they weren't allowed to leave the street. Sometimes barbed wire was strung around the streets. Sometimes there wasn't even barbed wire. There was just a rule that they couldn't go. And what that meant is that throughout the war, they had contact with their Ukrainian neighbors. There was never a wall separating them. So they could beg for potatoes from the Ukrainian neighbors. The Ukrainians could uh, throw potatoes over the wall or food over the wall. They could speak with their former neighbors across the uh, barbed wire um, or across, I said wall, but it wasn't an actual wall. Uh, so there was constant communication and interaction uh, between Ukrainians and Jews throughout the war. And that creates complex situations, both uh, they can be thankful that, for the Ukrainians who helped them, um, but it also means they're aware of who didn't help them. I mean, these stories really change the, the, the popular image of, of, of not just the Holocaust, of Jewish history in the 20th century in Eastern Europe. It's, it's uh, really quite eye-opening. And uh, um, I, again, you know, I, I, I have to recommend this book to, to all of our listeners. Um, one aspect of, of Jewish life that you have not yet touched on, and I think um, you know, people of my parents' generation who went for, for, on marches for Soviet Jewry and, and thought about Soviet Jewry as uh, you know, constantly under oppression and um, uh, the victim of anti-Semitism and anti-religious campaigns, I, I wanted to ask you about what did Jewish religious life look like in these towns in Shtetlach in this period? Yeah, so it's surprising to me how much Jewish religious life they were able to retain up to a certain point. Uh, for one, the younger generation, uh, those who were born uh, immediately before the war, those who were born, say, in the late 1930s, those who were born after the war, uh, have very little uh, religious identity, although still a strong Jewish identity. Uh, as uh, you, you probably know, Soviet Jews tend not to identify their Judaism by religion, but identify it by things like language, and ethnicity, in this category of ethnicity, that's an elusive category, um, but they know what it is. Uh, but nevertheless, I was surprised by the extent of religious practice uh, into the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, the Soviet Union, of course, was an atheistic state and did a lot to crack down on religion. But yet people continued to observe various aspects of their religion in important ways. They continued to have private prayer minions that would meet periodically in people's homes, uh, they continued to say Kaddish, uh, particularly after the war. There were so many people to say Kaddish for, 
and saying Kaddish became a very important part of, uh, of religious life in the shtetl. And people also seem to have retained a strong faith in God that they express in a variety of different ways. Um, but even in cases where the ritual has been forgotten, they continue to persevere in their Jewish faith, understanding it how they, you know, understanding it in their own way that may not be halachically uh, acceptable to everybody, but it's still a strong part of their uh, religious identity. Uh, holidays like Passover, for instance, they continue to celebrate. Uh, they continue to observe the Sabbath in some way, mm. uh, or at least recognize the Sabbath, usually by food. Uh, food is often the last thing to go, and many of them recall the special foods of the Sabbath and the foods of Passover, and that for them is a strong uh, identification between their, between their faith and the food. Uh, and the perseverance of that faith is something that's really surprised me. Are there any uh, particular interviews or stories that stand out in your memory as um, something that, that struck you, um, either um, as a scholar or emotionally? Um, certainly some of the stories of survival and perseverance have struck me. Uh, and the way that people remember. Uh, there's one fellow that we interviewed in Berdichev who told us that he was saved during the war because his mother told him to bake a loaf of bread, and he was baking a loaf of bread, and his mother told him to wait by the stove until the bread was ready, and that's how he believes he was able to survive, because he didn't do anything. He was so, as a young boy, he was so concentrated on the bread. And he says he continues to break bread uh, regularly in honor of his mother. And these little things that people could do, uh, one wasn't allowed to have a public memorial uh, for the war dead, for instance, um, but the little things that people did privately in order to remember and in order to preserve their faith, I find really inspiring. Uh, in another instance, there was a site of a mass grave that they weren't allowed to formally mark. Um, so the people of the town convinced the mayor to let them plant a grove of trees there so that nothing would ever be placed over, mm. over the site. And so they planted this, uh, this grove of trees, and that to them is their memorial. So really the human spirit is able to, to persevere and able to memorialize in really inspiring ways, even in the most difficult of circumstances. Um, if people want access to, to these oral histories, is there a way uh, for either scholars or, or lay people to, to access the, this, this archive, to access a HAME? Yes, yeah, so we have about, a, about 800 hours of interviews we have, um, all of which are cataloged and summarized. And those are on the web, but they're not publicly available yet. They will be in the relatively near future through the Avalon system of Indiana University. Uh, Indiana University, where I used to teach, did a lot to sponsor the project, and a lot of our materials are stored there. And then we have a public curated website uh, that uh, Asya helped design, uh, which is available at www.ahame.com. Wonderful. And, of course, in addition to the website, um, again, I have to give my personal recommendation uh, for this book. Um, again, the title is In the Shadow of the Shtetl, Small Town Jewish Life in Soviet Ukraine. 
uh, Indiana University Press, and uh, we've been speaking with Jeffrey Weidlinger. Jeff, thank you so much. A shame them dank. Yeah, thank you. Best of you. You've been listening to Tune In, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit our website at www.yiddishbookcenter.org. Our producer is Sarah Bleichfeld. I'm Sebastian Schulman. Seid mir gesinnt und stark. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.